Any prayer requests this morning? We have a lot to do. This is going to be... I'll understand if halfway through everybody gets up and... <laughs> There's a lot to do. You'll see. A lot to do. Any prayer requests? Glory. My neighbor and friend. Glory. Gloria? <coughs> What's going on? Can I ask? Yeah, I'm going to a spot on the liver. And fluid on the lungs. How old is she? 65, just got on Medicare. Where's your sister Carol? Still, how's she doing? Same? She doesn't have Yeah, yeah. <coughs> Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I'm going to offer a prayer that I often use myself in the morning um, with you guys except I'll adapt it to this group, so. Um, Christ, your words to us this morning were, feed my sheep. It's uh, what you said to Peter three times, um, feed my sheep. Um, help each of us here to do that. We're called to, to take you to the world, risk our lives. Um, um, you ended your command to Peter with a warning that um, when he got older he'd have to put away the things that he did when he was younger and be ready to go where the Spirit um, wants and knowing that he would lose his life, that people would take it. So that everything, everything Christ taught him at one point would have to be made real by, the, by his own life and um, whatever people would do to him when he brought Christ to them, give us the courage to do the same ourselves at the cost of our lives, to give up all those things um, we've lived for. Father, um, help. I ask um, that you help each one of us to be the children you've given each of us to be, um, your children. Christ, um, I ask us, help us to be your friends. You made it clear um, at your end um, that friends knew what their master was about, slaves didn't. Father, help us to be the sons and daughters you've given each of us to be. Christ, help us to be your friend that we love as you do in friendship. Holy Spirit, help us to be each of us gifts to make of our lives gifts, to offer them up freely. Give us the courage, the humility to do that. Ask for a special blessing for Carol. Watch over her, um, prepare her to, to meet you. Whatever the agony is, whatever pain, um, offset it um, with the joy, the hope of being freed of that pain shortly and knowing the joy of being with you. And be with Gloria. Um, whatever, whatever will be revealed going forward and whatever procedures have to be taken, surrender with your protection, help her to know your presence. In all of the ordeals we face when 
it gets hard and we become aware that we might not be there the next day. Help each of us to have the courage, the hope to live that day hopeful in joy. I hope to be with you. Let that be so for all of us. We offer these prayers in... Oh, Sue. Um, also ask a blessing on Sue. Um, let her know she has our prayers. She, she should know. I think she will. I hope she does. Um, watch over her. Let the procedures go well. Comfort her. Um, speed her back to us. Help her to know that. We offer these prayers. Um, Christ, in your name, our Lord. Amen. <coughs> Can everybody pull out the wreck of the Deutschland? Does everybody have it? And at the same time, can you pull out that little scansion sheet? I gave you a, you know, you've got that little short scansion page. Um, some of you asked for the large one, um, and I asked if anybody was going to take the larger one to, to make a a more generous donation because it's fairly long and thorough. It has all the stuff having to do with poetry. It's, I think it's really good. But I gave you a short one for anybody who didn't. It's just a, a, those two or three pages on prosody, the things that have to do with poetry. Did they hand out the long one? Did we hand out the long one? Do you have any extras of the scansion things, Doc? I don't know that. Can I borrow one? Sure. I'll give it back. Well, we, can, we, can, we can go to one. You have one, right? Take a look. This is the big one, so you have to find, work through it. But. Oh, that's the bigger one. Okay. I, I made bigger ones available, but asked for a greater donation because it's just larger. But the small one was just meant to sketch out some things. <coughs> Can I have your attention up here? All of you know that poetry um, can't be separated from a musical element. Poets have ears exactly like composers, musical composers. So what they hear in sounds is, um, that shows a, a really an exquisite sensitivity to sounds the way musicians do. They have that kind of ear. I remember this story about Robert Frost going to um, or being in Europe, and Alan Tate, who was a Southerner, a poet too, not as great as Frost, but... And there was this gathering of people, and Frost was holding forth on poetry and talking about different dialects. And when he met, by dialects, he didn't mean just um, Irish or English or Scotch or... Um, he was talking about dialects in, in um, the Northeast on the East Coast. <clears throat> because he was distinguishing between dialects between numerous areas, areas in the North Coast, in New England, Maine, 
you know, because there are lots of Indian tribes and peoples from various er areas that's, that have slightly different dialects, and they're very, obviously they're very nuanced. When Tate came into the room because he was a southerner, Frost identified where he come from, from in the south. That's how fine his ear was. So poets have this um, really keenly developed sense of sound. And that plays out in poetry because you know that one aspect of poetry, one of its defining elements, is its, is its musicality, the <coughs> harmony of its sounds, what a poet does with its sounds. The original form of poetry in English is called alliterative, alliteration, alliterative verse. Alliteration means stresses fall on initial consonants. Um, um, he was a friend of the father who was one of the founders. You know, that strong alliteration like that, whatever the consonant is. So the, the stress pattern, the, the rhythmic pattern is formed not by the number of syllables, but the number of alliterated stresses. And typically in Old English, the, the alliterative line was divided into two halves with two stresses on each line. I don't have... Can I borrow the, 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 that one? Yeah. If you look at the <coughs> if you look at the short scansion thing I've got you in the middle of the page, low we have listened to many a lay. You can all hear the four beats, right? Low we have listened to many a lay. I'm exaggerating, but yeah. there's your four stresses. The rule in in old English poetry was three alliterative, two on one side, and and at least one on the other. That was the rule. <clears throat> I mean, there were variations on it. The beauty of that is that it gave the poet some flexibility because the poet didn't have to hold himself to a certain number of syllables. One foot, one foot could have six syllables. Another foot could have three. Another foot could have ten. Didn't matter. So the idiomatic language that we use could, could accommodate, more easily be accommodated by that stress pattern because he wasn't fixed to numbers of syllables. Is that clear? So a, a phrase, an idiomatic phrase, let's say that had 10 syllables, could have been one foot, could have been two, depending on how it alliterated. But the rule was two stresses on each half of the line. So you've got, this is from Beowulf. Low, we've and this is a translation. This is not Old English. In old English, you wouldn't be able to understand at all. Lo, we have listened to Minialay, the spear dane's fame and martial deeds. From a friendless founding, feeble and wretched, he grew to a terror as time brought change. And what you have to remember is this is a translation. Okay? <clears throat> this is a translation. Here. It's a translation. It's not close to the original. What, what the, the translator is doing is attempting to translate it in a way that would be faithful to the stress pattern of the original. Okay. Now, so that's called alliterative verse. Two stresses in each half line. Okay. Um, and the important thing to know is that it, it gave the poet a great flexibility because he could have 20 syllables in one half and three in the other. It didn't matter. What mattered was the beat. Now everybody in here, I'm assuming, everybody knows how important beat is to music. 
when we were all, most of us when we were younger, we were made to take piano or do something. And you know that, I say one of the basic um, forms of measure in music is 4-4. Four, four. Mm -hmm. And you know that if you, if you, if you have a 4-4 four, four count, you can have, um, let's see, what is it, four quarter notes? No, four notes? Four whole notes? Four whole notes. Four, four. Isn't it four whole notes then in a measure? And you could have uh, two quarter notes, four eighth notes. You know, I mean, it gives you tremendous variety, possibilities for variation, but the measure is fixed because if you don't have that fixed measure, you won't have an order. It'll, it'll just be chaos. So the principle of music is whatever the beat is for every major, measure, and the, and the composer can play variations off that rule. So we hear this harmony even with its variations through a musical piece. Okay? Same thing, same thing in poetry. The poets work off of a rule, a measure, and they make, they make variations, they play with variations in order to give stress, to give a, a sense of counterpoint, of tensions. They do those things in poetry the same way a musical composer does. Okay? That was the rule of Old, old English. <coughs> After the French invasion, <coughs> I think it was in the 1000 or the 11th century, um, when the French invaded the English, um, they introduced a syllabic form into English. Syllabic means the measure now is determined by the number of syllables, not alliterative stresses. And the basic form in English was iambic pentameter. Penta, five. The underlying measure of English poetry, the, the norm, there, obviously there's lots of variations. There's, it can be tetrameter, four lines, or hexameter, a larger number of lines. But the, the rule tends to be pentameter. There are, there are lots of beats, but the two basic beats are a rising beat and a falling beat. A rising beat is unstressed stress. A falling beat is a stressed unstress. Okay? So I am means there's five feet of I ams. Da -da 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 Those are all rising feet, and there's five of them. That's the governing line for most book. All of Shakespeare's written in that. All of it. <clears throat> Just to be clear. <clears throat> Debbie, is Debbie a rising foot or a falling foot? Falling. Yeah. Can you hear it? Say it. Debbie. It's not Debbie, it's Debbie. Debbie. Right? <laughs> is um, Robert rising or falling? Rising. Robert? Robert. What is it? Falling. Yes, okay. Falling. Um, how about Linda? Linda, falling. Linda. It's not Linda, it's Linda. Francis. Francis. <laughs> falling. Francis, not Francis, Francis. Right? You all here? What about um, um, Susan? Falling. How about Suzanne? Right. You all hear the difference? Yeah. All of our names are going to be a rising, falling rhythm, one or the other. And the, 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 the rule in English is um, falling. 
That's just Debbie, you, Robert, Linda, Francis. You can go on and on and on. Barbara. It's rare. Suzanne's a rarity. You all know that anyway. Uh, Suzanne is a rarity. Can somebody come up with another rising name? A name with a rising rhythm. Leanne. Leanne. Sometimes, by the way, in French, the, the, the syllables are, are neutral. I mean, it just flattens out. Frederick. Most Frederick. words are rising or falling. Most Frederick. names. Frederick. What? Frederick. Frederick. Frederick is is falling. It's not Frederick. It's Frederick. I'm always heard as Frederick. Maybe that was maybe that was because my mom was always unhappy. No, no, maybe that's because you're contrary. God. It's Frederick. What are you doing with your chemistry set? How about how about Thomas? Yeah, Donald. You see, most names. Give me somebody. Come up with a rising. Can anybody? I know. Here, let's go. Let's go on. Let's go on. Here, here's here's what I'm going to do. <clears throat> find the Robert Frost example on, on the sheet I gave you. In the short sheet, um, it's on page three. On the on the short sheet. Yeah, who's Woods? You listen, can, you don't even have to have it. What I want you to do is listen, okay? So it's less important. Really, put your eyes off of it, just listen. The reason I want to do this is this. Frost in um, the, the poem um, Stopping by Woods, one of his most well-known poems, <clears throat> it's iambic tetrameter, okay? Iambic four lines of ions. Now remember, um, I'll, you'll see in a minute, you never, you never read according to the rhythm because that's the underlying measure. It's the, un, it's the unheard measure. You read rhetorically. So if you take the Frost poems, you don't go, whose woods these are, I think, I know, his house is in the village, though. See, you all can hear the, you know this, if you were to read this rhetorically, you wouldn't even know that it was measured. You wouldn't hear it. You wouldn't even think about it. If you studied poetry, you would. If you had a musical ear, you'd hear those things. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. And notice the inversion in the third line. It's not an I am, it's a trochee. It's an inverted foot. Why? He will not see me. Do you hear? I mean, that, that's an inverted foot. Anybody with an ear would hear something's different. Why? Because he's... He's, it's a way of giving an emphasis to the opposition, something that's not happening. 
<coughs> anyway, you don't read you don't read poetry that way. You read it rhetorically. So if you were reading Frost, you'd you'd say, "Whose woods these are? I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow." You'd read it rhetorically. Frost was a teacher in in New, when he moved to New Hampshire, and he would ask kids to read things. And he would judge their ability on the a basis to read rhetorically. It showed, it, that showed they understood what they were reading. <clears throat> and notice, notice this. Notice how the first two lines pause at the end so that the, rhythm, the rhythm is measured by the length of the line. Whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. Do you see how the statement coincides with the length of the line? Now watch what happens in the third and fourth. That is, are you supposed to stop at the end of the line automatically or go over? It depends rhetorically on what's going on. What happens in the third line is it's a, it's a run over. It hurries you forward. You don't stop. Somebody with a musical ear would hear that. So watch the pauses and then notice the variation. Whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch the... Do you see how that run on? Yeah. There's no way to stop there. If you stop, you're reading artificially. Now, Frost knows that, that run on. It's called a run on, a, ro a rove over. A run, you know, it's a movement over a line. So a poet has an ear for those things. Okay. The point I want to stress here is I want to read this because Frost is reading, writing in a typical iambic pattern. It's short, it's only four feet instead of five. But it, I want you to hear it, because when I read Hopkins, what you're going to hear is a combination of syllabic verse, five feet generally, um, mixed with an alliterative line, heavy stresses. Because what Hopkins did in the 19th century um, was go back to um, uh, medieval, early Anglo-Saxon poetry. Because everybody writing, the poets writing in the 19th century knew that the English language is, had reached a point of crisis. That after Shakespeare and Milton, everything was downhill. Everything was downhill. And he felt that there were sources of vitality in life in that old alliterative verse, so he incorporated it into English. What he did was affect an amazing revolution in, in poetry. Truly, he's one of the great modern innovators, what he did is, and I, I, there's not time to go into some of the things he did. Now here's one of the things to know about the Wreck of the Deutschland. The Wreck of the Deutschland is not a narrative, it's an, a lyric. It's a lyric. It's an ode. It's an ode. An ode is a public expression um, of a lyric. It's for a public occasion, okay? And watch the variations in stresses. I mean, the, um, I don't remember what the stress pattern is, but it, some lines have two stresses, some have four, some have five, some have six, but he's got a regular stanzaic form. The first line will be shorter, the next line a different length, okay? But, but you'll hear as I read it that it's a combination of syllabic and alliterative verse, okay? Any questions? Is, there, is that clear? Is everybody clear in that? Okay, I'm going to read Frost. 
I'm not going to say anything, and then I'm going to read the wreck of the Deutschland. Now, before I do, before we get to the wreck of the Deutschland, this is crucial to hear. Um, Frost had just read, an, Hopkins had just read an account of the, of the death of five nuns who were on board this ship. They had been forced out of Germany by the Falk Laws. The, the uh, monasteries, the church lands were confiscated, confiscated and Catholics were disenfranchised. That was happening in England, it was happening in Germany, persecution everywhere. The five nuns were forced to leave Germany. They had left um, northern Europe heading towards the islands, um, England and, and north, to go north around the, the islands into the um, Atlantic to America. So they set off from Germany on a ship going to America. It was a regular um, route, it was a common um, passage for ships. But as they head out, headed out into the North Sea, they hit a storm that drove them south towards the Thames. So even though they were going north to go around the islands, they ended up going into the Thames where the currents are disastrous. Everybody who navigates in that area, because there had been lots of wrecks all the time. They came on a shoal, a sandbank, and got stuck. And I think more than half the crew died in the, in the storm. So that, that event um, inspired Hopkins to write this poem, The Wreck of the Deutschland. The other thing to know about it is this. Hopkins had, is a year, I think when he writes this, he's a year away from becoming a Jesuit priest. This is really crucial, a Jesuit priest. The background of, of what's going on right now is really crucial for all of us, absolutely serious. Early in the century, this is about 1825, somewhere in there, a number of people in the Church of England were so upset by its laxness that it had become, the Latinitarian Church had become too lax, um, too liberal. There were a number of people, most of them coming from Oxford, they were educated men, who realized that what was happening was unhealthy. Now the Church of England at that time, remember that this is so crucial, the Church of England at that time was a compromise between the Evangelicals and the Anglicans. The Evangelicals didn't believe investments, the Eucharist. The Anglicans did. The Evangelicals, the fundamentalists, believed that the Anglicans were too much like the Catholics. And they believed that so long as they were, they were in error, serious error, because Catholicism was <coughs> the Antichrist. Um, <coughs> the church had become lax. A number of men wanted to reform the church. All of them were Protestants, all of them. Most of the educated men came from Oxford, and they led this movement called the Tractarian Movement. What they did was begin to write a series of tracts, tracts publicly on needed reforms. What happened when those men began to investigate the history of the church is that they discovered it wasn't, it wasn't because the church needed reform, it's because the church was fundamentally an error. And they realized that the problem was that they had broken from Rome. John Henry Newman left the church at that point because he saw Hopkins, 20 years later, was in the same position. 
he reached a point of realizing when he did what these other men did, when he studied the background of the church, he realized the problem wasn't that the English church, the Church of England, needed reform. It was the problem um, of breaking from Rome initially. Every one of those men saw that one of the most important issues in that reform was authority. Authority. If England can break from Rome and make itself the head of the church, what nation couldn't? And when every nation did that, how would the church maintain its unity under, in Rome, it would have been the Pope. Um, it, would, it could be a reason for the Greek church leaving. I mean, that had already happened. You know, the, the Greek and the Orthodox and the Eastern Western churches had already split. But it became a fundamental issue. And, and in that sense, they became, a, the serious question they faced was, is the Anglican church schismatic? Has it broken from the apostolic succession by turning away from the throat, declaring itself to have that authority as a nation? So it was a time of serious crisis, absolutely serious crisis, all, all, most, most of it centering on authority. But finally it took the men who realized what the problem was into Catholicism. And when that happened, England turned against them violently. They saw them as um, in, um, infidels, unfaithful, that they made something external to their country more important than their country, the king. If any of you have seen Chariots of Fire, you'll remember that scene when the people were horrified that Little would not have put King before his faith in God. I just, it's one of the great scenes in all of literature as far as I'm concerned. That was the problem. Hoth, I mean, uh, um, Hopkins um, found himself in a similar situation 20 years later. He has already become a Catholic. Um, and he is about to decide to enter the priesthood. When he does, he'll become a Jesuit. But it's important to know the Jesuits at that point were outlawed in England. Um, um, a century earlier, the Jesuits had come to England hoping to reconvert it, to bring it back to the faith, and they were singled out as a group because they were so militant in the way they pursued things. Jesuits were hunted down, killed, executed. Um, at some point, the conflicts became so serious that the Jesuits, as a as an order, was singled out um, in England for persecutions. When England passed the Catholic Emancipation Bill in the 19th century, early 20th century, I can't remember the dates on it. Um, there's a clause excluding the Jesuits. That's how much they were hated. So when when Hopkins became a Jesuit. He knew that he was putting himself at odds with England and everybody who hated the Jesuits, including his family. When he was consecrated as a priest, that consecration had to take place secretly. There's no way it could have been done openly without being persecuted. So this is a time when the persecutions of the Catholics are still really strong. The, the typical attitude of the Englishman towards the Catholic was bigoted, that he's, he's a traitor, he's bad. Um, Newman himself got persecuted. There was a, a Catholic who was put under house arrest, a guy named Achille. It was one of the big news articles of the time. A guy named Achille who had been a Catholic priest 
who was under house arrest for abusing, for, sexual, for crimes of sexual abuse. This is the 19th century. And the Protestants helped get him free and then asked him to speak at anti-Catholic meetings publicly. So there was a libel suit brought against Newman when Newman wrote about it because it had already become public. And if you watch the new, if you go back and research this, you'll just be horrified. When you watch this attitude towards Newman as if he were a criminal when he's trying to do everything he can to speak the truth on this issue, that this guy had, had committed horrible acts. He was under house arrest for sexual abuse stuff. And, and, and the guy, when he, when he admitted, he began to describe all these secret meetings of the Catholics and devil worship and you know, all these other things that the Catholics were doing. And, and, and the English loved it because it just confirmed them in their belief that there was something wrong with Catholics. So a lot's going on at that time. This is the back story for this. The specific context of it is these five nuns were forced into exile. They were on their way to America um, to establish a new order and were killed in this wreck. Okay. Now one last thing and then I'm, um, I'll read. <coughs> the poem is consciously developed like a fugue. The analogy is to music. It has two parts. Hopkins is going to speak in his own voice about a personal crisis of his own. And then we're going to shift into the voices of the people on board the ship, largely the, the, the nun, the, the tall nun. And we're going to find those two voices merging. So it opens with a theme, an answer, and then a bringing together. It's exactly like a musical fugue. Hop, Hopkins knew that. Okay. <clears throat> We're going to read the first part today. Next week we'll, we'll read um, the second ten lines, st sorry, second ten stanzas. The week after, which will be our last week together, we will read the third. Okay? So we'll read it in sections. I'm not going to comment on it today, um, except to say that the opening ten lines are about a crisis for Hopkins because he's, he's about to enter the priesthood. He's already had silent retreats in which he has gone to the host and felt God's call. So you're going you're to hear lines in which Hopkins is describing this, describing this moment of terror when God strikes into his heart this fear, like the fear of the ocean about you know where, where this power that this God how could God here we're back to Boethius how could God allow those women to die how can such things take place with a good God particularly with something like the ocean because the ocean is this overwhelming thing and God has to have power of that how can he allow it so the descriptions he gives are are about something overwhelming him and the sense of freedom suddenly when something happens to free him so. He's expressing these great tensions, um, this personal crisis that's going on in his life. Okay, that's where we'll stop. We'll pick up the second part next week, and the third part in the last. We're going to have two more meetings, and that's it for this year. Okay, so I'm going to read Frost's lines. I want you to hear how even they are, even though I'm trying to read them rhetorically, and then watch what Hopkins does with this this marriage between 
of alliterative verse and syllabic verse. Okay. <coughs> oh, by the way, last word. If you've read Stopping by Woods, if you haven't, Google it when you get home and read it. The, the speaker comes to a woods and he looks at the woods and says they're beautiful. Lovely lark into the darkest evening of the year. But I have promises to keep, promises to keep before I sleep. Um, the poem's about suicide. This man comes to a wood, he looks at it, and he's tempted to enter it and give his life up because the burdens are too great. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep. It's, it's a meditation on suicide and turning away from it because he's got obligations. He's going to go on. It's a heroic poem of endurance is what it's about. Suzanne and I, I don't know when this was, 20 years ago, we saw this poem. Wait, let me go back. Frost is the great American poet in this sense. He's American because he speaks to the pastoral ideal of America. Pastoral, the farm, agrarian, pastoral world, everything's nice and lovely. He's writing the tradition of the hard pastoral. What that means is he gives the surfaces of everything sweet and nice going on. That's what he does consciously. And underneath, he's revealing something that's dark. You don't, so often you don't realize it. you're reading this pastoral world, and then you start looking at it and realize <laughs> there's something there that, you know. So that's his tradition. That's what he did. That's his greatness. He spoke for America because America is this ideal of a pastoral garden. We came, we came from Catholic Europe to recover the garden. This Protestant was going to answer the corruptions in Catholic Europe and create this new world. And the new world for us was this garden. It's what it is today as modern suburbia. We're going to leave our sins behind. Frost knew that that was dishonest. But that's his theme because that's fundamentally American. So that's his... 20 years ago, Suzanne and I were in a store and we found this poem on a Christmas card. Wow. Because if you read it, it's so idyllic. I mean, think, I've talked forever about how badly we read. You read that idea and think, oh, how sweet. It's a poem about suicide. And they put this on a Christmas card. Well, it's snowing. That's right. It's only because I love you that I'm not showing you the door right now. That's exactly right. I get it. December? Christmas tree. I want you to be aware of that irony because that's the great irony. There's two levels. Frost was aware of it. How easy it is to read on that surface and completely miss what's going on. Okay, this is a section from Stopping by Woods. And then I'm just going to read. I'm going to go into it. So keep in mind, just listen, hear the differences. Don't even look at it. Whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. And then it goes on with these lovely lines again, but okay. Now, the wreck of the Ditchland, Gerard Manning Hopkins, the first section. The mastering me, God, giver of breath and bread, world strand, sway of the sea, lord of the living and dead. Thou hast bound bones and veins in me, fastened me flesh, and after it almost unmade what with dread thy doing. And dost thou touch me afresh over again? I feel thy finger and find me. 
two terms I'm going to go into next week more thoroughly. I just want <laughs> two of the most important terms for Frost, Frost, or I mean for Hopkins poetry is what he calls inscape, which is the rule of a thing. We've talked about this before. You've got a hundred oak trees, a hundred eucalyptus trees. What is it that makes all those hundred oak trees, even though every one of them is distinct oak? To see that is to see the form of a thing, not its individual properties, the form of it, its law, what makes that different. If you're going to be good at seeing things, you really won't know a eucalyptus from an oak unless you see that form, because then you could recognize a eucalyptus and an oak, because you see what's at the heart of it. Everything, this goes back to Plato and Aristotle, everything has a form or it couldn't be. What distinguishes one thing from another is its material properties, but its form, its species, its law. Okay? So, inscape is the law. Stress is the power of being, being stressed into a person. Hopkins believed that God, Christ, was the means of creation so Christ is being in-stressed. There's nobody alive who won't feel that stress. Sometimes we feel it as anxiety and want to get rid of it. Hopkins saw it as something good, natural. This stress of being that moves through us. Okay, so hold on to those just as, as a background. Just be aware of them, okay? <clears throat> because things, they, they're implied everywhere, and sometimes he gets explicit in what he does with them, okay? <clears throat> So God is mastering him. Um, and dost thou touch me afresh? Over again I feel thy finger and finding. I did say yes, O oh, at lightning and last rod, thou hurtest me truer than tongue confess thy terror, O Christ, O God. Thou knowest the walls, alter an hour and night, the swoon of a heart, that the sweep and the hurl of thee trod hard down with a horror of height and the midriffs a strain with leaning of, laced with the fire of stress. Can you already hear the great variety of stresses and rhythms and emotions, the difference between what Frost did in those four lines and this? Because the differences are, in terms of emotionally, what can be expressed or felt, the variety through a line and the frown of his face before me, the hurl of hell behind, where, where was a, where was a place? I whirled out wings that spelled and fled with a fling of the heart to the heart of the host. My heart, but you were dove-winged, I can tell, carrier-witted, I am bold to boast, to flash from the flame to the flame, then tower from the grace to the grace. <coughs> I am soft sift in an hourglass at the wall fast. Picture a wall or an hourglass. You know that the sand at the edge of the glass, next to the glass, goes slowly, but the sand in the center just drops. It's like an image of a weakness in our nature. We, we're, we're, we're fast at the edge. In the middle, collapses. It just, the weakness is there. I'm soft sift in an hourglass at the wall fast, but mind with emotion adrift. And it crowds and it combs to the fall. I steady as a water in a well, to a poise, to a pain, but roped with always, all the way down from the tall fells or flanks of the vole, a vein of the gospel proffer, a pressure, 
a principal Christ gift. So just as in an hourglass, the sand falls in, um, in the center, there are all these veins in a mountain, little rivers, veins, actually veins underneath, that feed to that well where they draw water. I kiss my hand to the stars, lovely asunder, starlight, wafting him out of it, and glow, glory and thunder. Kiss my hand to the dappled with damps and west, since though he is under the world's splendor and wonder, his mystery must be in stressed, stressed. For I greet him the days I meet him, and bless him when I understand. Not out of his bliss springs the stress felt, nor first from heaven, and few know this, swings the stroke dealt, stroke and stress, that stars and storms deliver. Can you hear the alliteration? The lines just beautifully pound with them sometimes. That guilt is hushed by, hearts are flushed by and melt, but it rides time like a riding, like riding a river, and hear the faithful waver, the faithless fable and miss. Most Christians don't see it. Eternity is like the riding, it's here, all around us. It dates from the day of his going in Galilee, warm laid grave in a womb life gray, manger maiden's knee, the dense and driven passion, and frightful sweat, thence the discharge of it, there it's swelling to be, though felt before, though in high flood yet, what none would have known of it, only the heart being hard at bay. It's only when our back's up to the wall that we really feel well, his presence, what's really going on. Is out with it, oh, we lashed with the best or worst word last, how a lush kept plush capped slew will mouth to the flesh burst, gush, flesh the man. The being with it, sour or sweet, brim in a flash full, hither then, last or first, to hero of Calvary, Christ's feet. Never ask if meaning it, wanting it, warned of it, men go. Be adored among men, God three-numbered form. Bring thy rebel dogged in den, that's the problem with us, defiance, dogged in den, man's malice. With wrecking and storm beyond sane, sweet, past telling of tongue, thou art lightning and love. I found it a winter and warm. Father and fondler of heart, thou hast rung, as thy dark descending and most art merciful then. With an anvil ding, and with a fire in him forged thy will, or rather, rather than stealing as spring through him, melt him, but master him still. Whether at once, at once, had a crash Paul, or as Austin, a lingering out sweet skill. Remember, Paul was hit on the road to Damascus, so Christ came to him immediately. Paul went to his knees. For St. Augustine, it carried out over a long period of time. Remember, St. Augustine's answer to God's call was not, yes, but not now. How did it go? Not yet. He didn't want to give up his lust, you know, that he just said yes, 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 but not yet. So he's describing two ways of God coming at, at us to, to answer this, this, um, this dogged and den, man's malice, this malice we carry. Through him melt him, but master him still, whether at once, as once it had a crash, Paul, or as Austin, St. Augustine, 
a lingering out sweet skill, make mercy in all of us, out of all of us, mastery, but be adored, but be adored king. That's the beginning. What he'll go on to do now is describe the wreck and what these nuns do, particularly one nun who stands above the rest. She's described as a lion. What's going to happen, um, if you'll read this, the two voices will meet at the, at the crisis of the poem. I'm not going to give it away. The two voices will meet at the crisis of the poem. So like a fugue, there's a voice, another voice, and then suddenly, at a point of crisis, the two will come together. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful poem. Studying. Anyway, I hope you enjoy it. Read it. Okay. <clears throat> Didn't know you were going to get all this poetry stuff, did you? <laughs> okay. <coughs> all this music. All this music. Uh, very, very quickly. Um, the Canterbury Tales is a collection of, I can't remember how many people right now. Initially, 20, um, Chaucer was going to do the poem with, I think, 34, 35 um, pilgrims. 34. Um, he doesn't have that number. The initial plan we know from the opening in the prologue was that um, each person was going to give two tales on the way to, to Beckett Shrine and two back. But he doesn't get close to that. What we've got are the, I think it's um, um, 20, I can't remember. It, it's supposed to be 34, but we only have the number that we have. A lot of them are missing. All of these people are on their way to St. Thomas Becket's throne, or I mean shrine. Once again, we've got the situation that we saw in Milton and Dante um, that, um, that we'll see with um, Th Thomas More um, a couple of centuries later, and um, the time closer to Milton. Um, Henry wanted to have greater control over the clergy, wanted to expand his powers, and he chose Becket, assuming that Becket would do his will. And when Becket refused, and well, let me put it, as Becket grew into his office, he became a holier person, and he recognized the threat to the church. So he just didn't make the concessions that Henry wanted him to make. Um, he stubbornly held out because he saw how important it was that the priests owe their allegiance first to Rome and not the king. That con so think about that conflict. This is 14. This is well. That happened 12th century. Wagner's Chaucer's writing. Early, late 14th century, somewhere around 1385, I think he's writing the Canterbury Tales. So think about it, here we are. This, I mean, it's been a constant. It was there with Dante earlier. It um, was there in the church always. Um, it was there with Boethius. It's here now in 1400, okay? This tension between church and state. And um, the, the, the alleged story is, and I don't know how accurate it is, Henry's comment about um, Thomas Becket was, will somebody rid this, will nobody rid this viper from my, you know, take him away, rid, rid us of this viper, something like that. And this is the way to let the king off the 
hook because the understanding is one of the lords heard him and went off, so three of the lords killed him. So the king was innocent. He didn't know what was going on. I, I'm not sure about that, but anyway. That's the story. So what's going on right here is really important. Um, one of the major themes of Canterbury Tales is the unity of the faith in England. Now set it against everything that's about to happen and you'll see how remarkable it is because at this point England's united. What, Falk, what Chaucer is showing us is all of England going to Thomas Becket Shrine, a pilgrimage is taking place, and they're united. They share the same faith. They're going there. Thomas Becket stands out as a martyr for his resistance to the crown. So there's a spiritual unity among these people, and the, the, the understanding is it's England. Everybody's there. Interesting. The only people lacking, missing, are royalty. But everybody else is there. Nobles, knights, paupers, monks, priests, prioresses. So we're watching an England united in a, in a spiritual journey to Becket's shrine. The understanding is that they're going to tell two tales out and back, and whoever gets the best tale will have a free dinner. That's the arrangement that the, that the tavern owner made. So two things are coming together. Um, the unity of England, its shared faith, and a pilgrimage. That's the unspoken center of the poem. Um, what's going to happen as the, as the stories unfold is we're going to see <laughs> not only stories about, told by certain people, but stories told in such a way as to get at somebody else. So even though, even though there's this wonderful unity in faith, they get angry at each other, they twist their stories to put somebody down. I mean, would you see these hidden rivalries between people, uh, the envy and the pride. And um, the wonderful thing about Chaucer is his humor. I, 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 I don't think there's a person more, it, it, for me, it's rare to find anybody that's Catholic. There are the worst kinds of sins going on. His whole spirit is um, comic, merciful, charitable. He shows people, but he doesn't have that critical edge that moderns have. There's this large, large heart. So behind all of this is this wonderful heart. You'll see it in, in um, the Night Seal. Now, <clears throat> I forgot to mention this is the meaning. It was one of the things that I meant to cover. Next week we're doing Midsummer Night's Dream. It's Shakespeare's treatment of the thesis, and I think you'll be amazed when we, when we put the two together. The following week, to end the, our time this year, the following week I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a wrap-up, and I'm going to focus on the human person as we've come to understand it through Milton, Dante, Chaucer because that's been our work for months now. I'm going to focus on the human person and what these poets help us to see. Fred asked, um, put a question about the immortality of the soul. Um, and I'm going, to, I'm going to respond to that because I think it's so appropriate to what we're doing. So next week, Shakespeare, Midsummer Night's Dream, and the following week, a wrap-up. That's it for the... the this, we'll stop for the summer and then come back next year. Okay, the Knight's Tale. The Knight's Tale. On the surface, it seems like a very, very simple story. It is. It's, um, <clears throat> one of the things I want you to note before we get to it, because it will come back noticeably again, 
is that he, he writes in what's called royal couplets, rhyming couplets. Every two lines rhymes. I'm going to ask a question here at the beginning. I, this is sort of going to be obvious, but maybe, maybe not, I don't know. If you've got iambic pentameter, this is what um, Chaucer's writing, royal couplets, each two lines rhyme, that's the form. Would you think that that form would lend itself more to tragedy or comedy? I, did everybody hear Fred's? I don't know. Well, I don't know if it was right or not, but doesn't matter. I, just does. I don't know if it's because of the things that I've read. You know, it seems that way, but it just seems like that that rhyming scheme seems to be more uplifting, mm -hmm. and therefore it seems to me like it would be more like a comedy than a tragedy. How easily could you sustain a, a lament with rhyming couplets? At some point, don't you feel that when they're rhyming, it becomes ridiculous? It's silly. I mean, you expect it. It's almost like you expect it, and it becomes comic because it lacks the gravity. Um, laments and elegies generally tend to have longer lines, and they wouldn't be rhyming couplets because the minute you hear a rhyme, it's hard not to hear it in the face of a grievance. Just keep that in mind because at the end, it'll make sense if it doesn't make sense now, okay? But just keep that in mind. He, he's, he's rhyming. He's writing in rhyming couplets, okay? Now the great themes of the next show. <coughs> First great theme is that Chaucer's going back to our founding. So this is another poet doing what Virgil did with Homer and Dante did with Virgil. We've seen it again and again. He's going back to the past and transforming it, carrying it forward. So he's taking a founding, what was a founding event, a person for the pagans, Theseus, and all these great deeds that he performed. And he's going to do justice to the deeds, but he's going to do it in a situation that's going to allow him to, to look at something Christian and Catholic. Love. Because that was not the ideal for the pagans. He's going to look at human love. Sexual love is at the center of it. Um, Boethius is everywhere in this poem. If you've read Boethius seriously, there's no way you can read the Knight's Tale and not see him because you can't read 20 lines without the mention of fortune. Something's happened, something shouldn't have happened, something happened, it looks like predestination, miracles, destiny, um, um, and justice. Um, you want to comment on that, Don? What's no, what came? Injustice. Huh? Injustice. Oh, yeah. <coughs> Justice. I mean, it was a major theme in Boethius, but um, so many things seem to happen as a matter of chance. Um, there are these two men <coughs> who are survivors of the Theban <coughs> war, <coughs> the war against Theban, who happen to survive. They're discovered. Theseus takes them back to Athens, and they're in prison. While they're there, this woman happens to pass in front of Palamon, and he falls in love with her. He says something to his cousin, and immediately he falls in love with her. By chance, one of the men um, is freed, and much later, the other man escapes. It just so happens that the um, one who escaped was hiding behind a bush. No, the one who was, yeah, is hiding, and the one who was set free 
is in disguise at Sarcita. He goes to make a garland to take back to Emily, and the two men meet. And it just so happens on that day, Theseus is out on a ride and sees the two men. And, and both of them at that point are, are liable to execution because they're both in violation of the law. One was supposed to leave and never come back, and one should have never escaped. They owe their lives to him. If it weren't for the pity of the women, they'd be dead. He, um, he spares them, and we have this tournament at the end. That's the, but there's chance again and again and again, and the greatest chance occurs at the end, and I'm going to wait on it. Um, so Boethius is everywhere in this story, and it'll become even clearer as we go through it. One of the great themes of Knight's Tale is the city. I cannot speak to this enough. You know from the beginning, from the Iliad, Dion, every one of them, that the, Plato in the Republic, the Republic. The city is the matrix in which all great poets up to the modern world, <coughs> the matrix, because it's, um, it's the defining compass for all activities. It's far more important than the family. Um, because lots of influences shape the family itself. And, and if that's not clear, think about this. What's the difference between a family growing up in Islam in an Islamic country and a family growing up in a Jewish country and a family growing up in an American cult culture? There's something going on in the culture around that family that's determining almost everything going on in the family. So the city is a matrix. It's where everything happens. All these forces go on. It's been a major theme. Um, <clears throat> one of the conditions for this story unfolding to the conditions, <coughs> one of them is um, the two cities were conquered, two, two communities. That's the condition, one of the conditions for the story going forward. Before the story opens, Theseus has defeated the Amazons, and shortly afterwards he defeats the Thebes. Now what's at issue there? Lots, absolutely lots that's crucial to the story, and nothing's ever said about it. You either see it or you don't, but it's there. Who are the Amazons? The Amazons are women who make their relationship to other women more important than their relationship to men. More importantly, their relationship to each other is based on their opposition to men. Theseus has to overcome that. He conquers Hippolyta. So one of the conditions of the story going forward is Theseus conquering that something not good in woman that makes their attachments to each other greater than their attachments to men. And we'll see that. I mean, it's like an affirmation of the rational over the affective or repetitive or emotional. Theseus, or Hippolyta, is um, very sensitive, just as her sister Emily is. You can't miss it through the story. When we get to Shakespeare, it's going to be even clearer. Shakespeare is going to show us that women tend to be far more exquisitely sensitive. Their emotions are nobler because they, they feel more deeply than men. Um, and um, Hippolyta, you'll wait till you, you'll see it when we get to Shakespeare. Hippolyta um, feels so strongly about what the mechanics are doing that she, want, she would rather spare them. She said, don't, don't let them go through this. Theseus' response is, no, leave them alone. That what they lack, we will make up for. So 
Theseus as an image represents something far more democratic, inclusive. That's the nature of our founding. And one principle of it is overcoming that in women, which is contrary to that. The second is um, Thebes. If you know your literature, Thebes was the noble city. Once again, it's the sense of this nobility. It's royalty. He had to go up against the king of Thebes and this royal bloodline. So, and if you watch what's going on, you can't read without seeing Palamon and Arce are both nobles. They have that same royal bloodline, which also means their pride is greater. So what goes into the founding of Athens is more democratic in two cents, sexually, between a man and a woman, and politically. Thebes is a very noble city, it did great things. If you go back to the um, earlier works, I mean, those of you who've been doing this for a while will see it. The whole Oedipus story is a movement from Thebes to Athens. Oedipus starts out at Thebes. It's a noble city, he's a king. We know that the, the reason he's a king is because he killed his own father without even knowing who was a king. And he has this noble sense of his, this pride in his own abilities. So, Thebes is the royal city, the noble city, because it breeds a class of people who, by virtue of that, the nature of that group, puts itself above others. So in conquering Thebes, what he's, what he's make, I mean, what's implicit is that he's taking that Thebean way of life and moving it to Athens. In, Oedip, in Oedipus Rex, remember, Oedipus killed his father, takes the throne, He's the problem. Antigone follows that, and then as the story develops, the last play in the um, Oedipus series is Oedipus at Colonus. Nobody reads that. They should. The last image we go of Oedipus is with his eyes gouged out in, in Oedipus Rex. The last image we have of that man is he's gone to Athens, and his family comes to get him, to, to get his support for the war, because it's rumored that he's blessed now by the gods, i.e. he's more human because he's, there aren't these beliefs in him that separate him from people. His family comes to get him and he says no. And the last image we have of Oedipus is that he's ascended, taken up by the gods in this condition of blessedness. So you cannot understand what's going on in those plays if you don't see them in terms of a shift from Thebes Athens. This is why Pericles Athens, why Athens is so important in the ancient world. One last example, Aeschylus's Oresteia, the three plays that make up the first great tragedy in, in Western culture. The first one is Agamemnon returning home, he's killed, his wife kills him, Orestes, his son, has to avenge his death and kill his mother. When Thena and the Furies overtake him, the middle play is about the Furies, they overtake him. They're, they're turned into the blessed one, the humanities, the blessed ones, by Athena. So this overwhelming, what we would call insanity, madness today, that he feels because he has to kill his mother. You can imagine the guilt or whatever. Um, um, with Athena, because he's doing it at Apollo's request, that Apollo says, come to, you have to do this. Um, Athena comes to get him and takes him to Athens. So. There, in the first great children trilogy of tragedy in the West, is the shift from this noble 
bloodline aristocratic regime to a democracy. And, and you have all these stories of defeating the Persians, you know, the Babylonians. That, um... So Athens is not just a, a name. It represents something more Catholic, more universal in the human soul. The class divisions, racial divisions should not keep people apart. That's what Athens was. Now hold on to this, just with this background. So the, the play moves forward on two conditions. Theseus has just overcome Hippolyta, and he's just defeated Thebes, the noble line. Chaucer would have known what, what Chaser knew 200 years later, that everybody would have known then that we no longer have a sense of. There were three major ways of life. What was called the Athenian way, the Roman way, the Davidic way the way of Athens, the way of Rome, the way of David, the Davidic, the way of Jerusalem. Those are the three defining paradigms for Western culture. They've defined us. You know, when we do this, like, people come back and say it's amazing now that I've done it because once you've read the Iliad and the Odyssey, remarks will come up and you'll be able to identify them and you'll think, holy cow, you know, it, it's been there, that they're so much a part of our culture, but because they're not read anymore, we don't know it. The Greek world, the Roman world, the Jerusalem world, the Davidic world, they make up our being. They're all in us. So Chaucer had that sense of the cities. This, this, the, the, the relationship of Thebes to Athens is not small. Everything in the play moves to Athens. And everything that Theseus does in the story, Chaucer would have understood as representing this more universal, for him, Catholic. You know that the story ends with Palman, who's gone back to Thebes, being brought to Athens and to consummate a marriage <clears throat> that will bring Thebes and Athens into a peaceful unity. So there's an implied um, substructure to this whole story, the city, and particularly that involves races and sex. Um, Law and mercy, there's a law everywhere. Um, um, th there's a law implied in what Theseus did with Hippolyta, with Thebes, um, with the two lovers, Palamon and Arce. You, you know that when they're brought to Athens, they're supposed to be perpetual prisoners. They will never be released. <clears throat> they won't be executed. So right at the beginning, Theseus shows his mercy. Instead of killing them, even though they were enemies, he takes them prisoner. You know that a good friend somehow manages to negotiate Arcita's release, he's released, but he's released on the condition, on the law, that he not come back. If he, if he does, his life is forfeit, he leaves. And, and the interesting thing, we're going to come to this notion of love in a minute, um, he leaves, Palamon is envious because he thinks now that Arcita's gone, Arcita will be able to get Emily. Um, our seat thinks Palawan's going to get Emily. Neither one of them is going to get her. But they're under a law, and um, our seat does come back in violation of his law. Palawan escapes in violation. When Theseus comes across the two again, Palawan steps forward and says, "Take my life," because he knows his life is forfeit. The women plead for him, and Theseus spares them again. But he does it on the condition of this joust at the end. This this conflict, this um, challenge, this or what in the, in the Middle Ages was called the ordeal, that knights would come together with the 
with a belief that whoever wins would show God's will, that God's will would be best expressed in that fact. So they come together to, for this ordeal. <clears throat> Sexual love, the center, except with this other problem. Most people who read this see that um, amour courtois, amour courtois, courtly love, it's one of the great themes that runs through the whole of the Canterbury Tales, but it's being critiqued. Most teachers who teach this see that Palamon and R.C. are examples of court, the courtly lover. Amour Courtois would, um, took this form. The lover looked at the woman outside of marriage as his liege. His relationship to her was the relationship of a vassal to a lord. He would give his life for her. It was outside of marriage because it was understood in a marriage that a marriage is defined by obedience. The husband owes obedience to God, the wife to her husband. But what did you do with the passions? So the whole world of courtly romance involves, makes an opening for the passions. But complete, absolutely. The courtly lover knew that he, and he let his beloved know that he would, there was nothing he wouldn't do for her, even give up his life. So that's the theme, that's the central theme, except it's really mistaken. It's there. If you watch it in The Lovers, when Palamon first sees Emily, he says, she's a goddess, I love her, my life is owed to her, that's what he says. He says to Arcee, come and look. When Arcee sees her, he says, I love her. Now, two men who were brothers, cousins before, who loved each other, who were absolutely loyal to each other, at that point, hate each other. They're ready to kill each other. So, Chaucer's exploring in the way in which love can get out of hand. That's the opening. When our seat goes and leaves Palamon, now remember, both people think, this is the great, one of the great themes of the, the work, the way in which love relates to freedom. Both men believe if they were free, they could realize their love for Emily. So our seat says, if I only had my freedom, I could do it. Well, he's released, oh, but on condition that he stay away. When he goes away, he starts imagining Palamon succeeding. Palamon's there, and he says, if I could only get away, he can at least watch Emily. Arcee can't, because Arcee is away. But he says, if only I were free, I could pursue Emily. So he escapes. So both men believe if they had the freedom, they could consummate this love. So one of the questions... Chaucer's asking is, what's the relation of love to freedom? To the freedom to pursue our desires. Now you remember from Boethius what the answer to that is. We think so long as we can gratify all of our desires, we'll be happy. Boethius blew that out of the water. Every one of them he showed um, isn't going isn't to bring man happiness. There'll always be something more. So fundamental to this story is this notion of amour courtois, except we've got to see amour courtois, the love between these two knights, in the context of what Theseus does with Hippolyta. Because Theseus is the one who is the ruler, he's the one who makes peace possible, and um, in, a, in a sense he's speaking for Boethius at the end, at the very end, when he, when he brings Palamon home and he gives that speech on the first cause. We're going to end this morning looking at it because it's so good. 
That speech is direct from Boethus. And we'll see its relevance to love then. But that's something none of the lovers have, the sense of detachment, letting go, until the end. And we'll see then. It's a, it's a point I'll underscore later. What we learn from the story is that nobody can love until they give up their life, until they give up their desires. That's straight out of Boethius. Right? Our seat thinks, if I could only be there, Boethius, I mean, Talmud, if I could only get out, both get their wish, it doesn't happen. Um, Theseus is a man of justice, a man of law, says, we have to do justice, you owe, you owe your lives, we'll do it this way, let's have a joust. Whoever wins gets Emily. That's an ordeal. And we'll look at what happens. Our seat wins, Palamon loses, he has to give her up. As Soon as our seat wins, his horse trips and he dies. And, our, and Emily has had to give up her will because the terms of it were whoever won could marry her. That's why Palamon goes off because our seat won. So every one of the lovers, Palamon, our seat, Emily, have to give up their will. And unless they do, until they do, there will always be something self-serving in what they do. So what the story is showing us is all these couples involved in this courtly romance, this ideal of love, but Christianizing it, bringing something to this Theseus story that the pagans could not. So those are the major themes. And behind it all is this, from Boethius, straight out of Boethius, is this notion of providence. You've got all these minor gods, Jupiter, Jupiter, Venus, Diana, those are the minor gods who have control of the couples. They have their will, they contradict each other, these confusions go on. There is one god above all of them, Saturn, who's helping to bring about something that these minor... Remember the distinction between providence and fate? Fate has to do more immediately with our world, and providence is a view that can encompass the whole thing. The distinction we made between perpetuity, you can't see the whole of it, you're too involved in it, and providence, the still point at the center of a circle. From that perspective, you can see the whole of it. This whole problem of learning to see holes, it can't be answered without stepping outside of them. So this idea of problems. So <laughs> this is like a road back into Boethius. I mean, he's there everywhere in the story. So let me stop there. I want to look at the story. Any, any questions? I'm going to go through the story fairly quickly. On the surface, the story looks really simple. Really simple. It's a really simple story. But it's just masterful in what Chaucer's doing now, how much is there to see. Okay, let's, let's go. Go to the very beginning. I'm just gonna quickly go through some quotes and try to get to the end, because I want everybody to look at the end. Forty-two. Oops, I forgot. Okay. Doc, help me. I, we've all got the same edition, but I didn't realize it when we ordered it that it was changed. So it's still Coghill's 
translation, but the page numbers are different. So help me out, all of you. My, in my book, I want to go to page 40, the very beginning. It's about two or three pages in when um, Palamon first sees Emily. 48. What page do you have, Doc? I can't. Here, let me find a paragraph to help. 32. It's where the sorrowful prisoner, the. 32. Pal 32. 32. Yeah. If you could all, I'm really sorry. I didn't even realize until Monday night. I thought we all had the same, same edition, same exact translation, but a different pagination. This, so, our seed and Palamon are prisoners. The war with the Amazons, this women who set them, who make their relationship with each other the principle of their life. The Thebians who belong to a royal line. There's a bloodline, a royal line being passed down. Palamon and Arcita Hartha, they're now prisoners. They're in jail and um, Palamon sees Emily walking outside. This is the, the moment of awakening when a man I think most men can relate to it. You see a woman and your knees shake. You look at the woman and it, she's a thing of beauty and you your desires are immediately, that's, that's fundamental to every work of literature. Paris with Helen started the Trojan War. It's been with us, it will, it will be with us till we leave this world. They're both prisoners. This sorrowful prisoner, this Palamon, was pacing round his chamber to and fro lamenting to himself all his woe. Now, fro woe, can anybody not read that and not begin to hear something comic? This, the, what, put it, this guy's grieving. He's in misery. How much does the line allow us to feel misery? The sorrowful prisoner, this Palamon, was pacing round his chamber to and fro, lamenting to himself and all his woe. Alas, he said, that ever I was born, so it happened on this May Day morn. Can you hear it? I think when we read it, we don't hear it. That's why poetry should be, but when you hear it, you can't miss it. It just, it, it changes the poem. He chanced on Emily to cast his eye, and as he did, he blenched and gave a cry. Do you hear <laughs> Every line is comic, just by virtue of its nature. But by, see, oh, do it this way. Put it in the hands of a pagan, or an excessive romantic. How would a romantic describe that motion? Would he ever hold himself to that kind of rhyme scheme? His feelings couldn't be contained. He'd want to go on because his passions would have to be expressed. Um, and the pagans would be, would be focusing on the woe. There's no way we could not feel it. Chaucer's not going to let that happen. Um, he chanced on Emily to cast his eye, and as he did, he blenched and gave a cry as though he'd been stabbed into the heart. And at the cry, Arcita gave a start and said, my cousin Palamon, what ails you? Um, go down. Think we are prisoners. We shall always be. Fortune has given us this adversity. There is Boethius. Every ten lines. Go on to the over next page in the paragraph. Now as he spoke. What page? Somebody quick. Thirty-three. Um, now as he spoke, our seed a chance to see this lady as she roamed there to and fro, and at the sight her beauty hurt him so that if his cousin had felt the wound before, our seat was hurt so much as he or more. With a deep and piteous sigh, he said, the freshness of her beauty strikes me dead, here that I see roaming in yonder place. Unless I gain the mercy of her grace, 
unless at least I see her day by day, I am but dead. There's no more to say. <laughs> Even lines like that. If, if you read it, you can almost, you won't hear it, but if you read it That's out loud. Queen. Huh? You think drama queen. <laughs> yes. Thank, thank you for that. Thank you for that. Um, I am but dead. There's no more to say. <laughs> you can see, pass out. I mean, like, whatever. So then Palamon began to knit his brows. The great, um, great honor. Then he said to you to prove so false. Now men who are who are allies, brothers, faithful to each other, are now enemies. They are traitorous to each other. Go down a few lines. I trust you with my secrets, make no doubt you would have treacherously go about to love my lady, whom I love and serve, and never shall, till death cut my heart's nerve. No, false Arcite, you shall never do. I loved her first and told my grief to you. Arcite's going to say, you don't even know her. You thought she was a goddess. I love her as a woman. So here we've got these two views of womanhood, and remember, they go back to the Odyssey. Um, Calypso, eight years, was the image of that divine in woman. Circe was an image of woman that um, awakens the sexual, uh, turns men into animals, and he was with her for a year. So Chaucer's aware of these distinctions, and they're represented in the two men. They see her in completely different ways, and they're ready to kill each other. Go, Doc, what's the last page at the beginning of part two? I've got page 55, me. We're page 39. 39? Thanks, Don. Go up to above to the last paragraph of part one. So, both men say they're miserable because they desire this beautiful woman, and um, one of them will get free and go away, one of them's left. Okay, so Emily's present to Palamon, even though he can't, he can only see her. Arcita's is out. Arcita believes that Palamon. This is watch the way love works, what it does to the imagination. Arcita says, if I could only go back, I could still see her. Um, and Palamon's going to find some way to get to her. Palamon's going. I wish I were Arcita, because he can get to her. So long as I'm locked up here, I can't do anything. So both men want, love this woman, their desires are for her, they see her from two completely different standpoints and envy the other. They wish they were the other, even though they were both miserable and ready to kill each other and want to be where the other is. Here's Chaucer, so Chaucer's playing with this notion of Amor Courtois, but he's also doing something that the medieval scholastics would do like St. Thomas. He presents this problem and asks a question. This is absolutely scholastic. So part one ends this way. You lovers, that's us. Here's a question I would offer. <laughs> this is so funny. So we've got this intense drama between these two men. They're ready to kill each other. And Chaucer, the knight, tells this tale. Um, our cedar parliament, which had most to suffer, the one can see his lady day by day, that he must dwell in prison, locked away. The other's free, the world lies all before, but never shall he see his lady more. Judge as you please between them, you that can, for I'll tell on my tale as I began. <laughs> I, just a moment. Who do you guys think suffers more? And keep Boethius, by the way, in your mind. But who do you think suffers more? Our seat. Our seat, why? <clears throat> because he can't even see her. At least Palomar has 
ability to see her, even though he's in prison. Suzanne said this when I asked her, because I, I was just laughing through this whole thing. It's so funny. Fred, did you have? I would say Palamon. Why? Because you, you, it's, it's constantly thrust at you, and yet there's, and I guess it depends on the personality, but if you're, if, you, if you're one who likes to control their environment, you know, you're sitting there, you know, it's right there and you can't do a darn thing about it. You know? But if you're not that kind of person and your love for her is absolute, yeah. then well, what? Well, I, I, can, I can see the other, I can see the other point of view, uh, you know, where Don's coming from. But for me, it would be Palomar. That was my inclination too. The, the, I, I mean, it's, what's funny for me is this is like one of those questions that the scholastic faces, how many angels in there? I mean, you, it's a debating question, and you'd find that there's as many good reasons for one side as the other. The whole point was to teach you to learn how to think. As soon as Suzanne said that, my first response was, but think about Palamon because he's always got her in front of her, so his desires are constantly kept at a pitch, and he can never answer them. So wouldn't they get intensified? It's not out of sight, out of mind, because our seat's not going to forget her. But it's interesting that, he, that this story would end with a, que a scholastic question dealing with romance. Because immediately it's asking us to step back and look at this. I can't believe Palamon lasted for two years. I'd be gone in a week. <laughs> I'd be over there pounding my head against the wall. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it, because she's right there in front of him. I mean, how, how much can you put up with desires when, you know, Anyway, to me it's a beautiful question because it shows, it, it exposes us, it shows us, this guy is so clever, Chaucer is so clever in what he's doing. Um, okay, let, let's go on. You know what happens next is our seat's out, Palamon's there, Palamon manages to get free, oh, here Doc, I can't, uh, So what are you looking for? That scene where, um, where... Um, Theseus comes across. Palamon answered quickly and in guilt, O oh, sir. 49. What, where is it? 49. 49. You know that our seat's out, was out, and he, he a resourceful man. He's not going to be, he's not going to be denied. His desires are not going to be denied. Puts on a disguise, goes back into the court, and works his way into becoming Emily's page. So she's around him all the time, he goes out to make a garland. I mean, you can see his emotions building, maybe to the point of even revealing himself. We don't, but he goes out to make this garland. Meanwhile, by chance, fortune, Palamon has escaped. And he runs to hide, and the two men confront each other. Now, here's the nobility of that royal bloodline. Arcita's response is, as, as a nobleman, he hates this man because he's a rival in love. He says, I'm going to go back and get armor. We'll meet tomorrow and find it out. So Palamon rests the evening there. Arce comes back the next day with armor, they, and he, he lets them choose. The men are killing each other, and it, I think it's important to see their nobility is roughly equal. They, they fight to a draw. They're both, they're, they're both good lovers. They're both noble men. They're soldiers. Um, neither gets the victory over the other when, or at least at that point, when Theseus writes up. Okay. So, once again, um, uh, uh, can you go back a page, the paragraph, now destiny that minister general? That's just the page before, do you all have it? 
So at the beginning of a paragraph. I'm, I'm not going to stay there, but now destiny, that minister general who execute on earth and all over what God from everlasting has foreseen. We're back in Boethius. Go down a few lines. And certainly our appetites and fears, whether in war or peace, in hate or love, are governed by a providence above. So reminders again that if, you, if, you, if you're holding Boethius, remember he said no, no fortune is ever bad. Remember we spent, a, there's nothing bad to God. God's a God of love. He takes everything humans do and turns it to good. God's at work everywhere. The whole, the major point of Boethius at the end was, so much of our problems depend on how we see, how we know things. What he was doing was correcting our vision, <coughs> helping us to see there's a difference between the way men look at things, see things, and the way God does. God doesn't foresee. He just sees. That whole question of predestination. So one of the problems that we face in our life is that so often we don't see the way we should. And it, it has these results. So... Whether a war, peace, or hate of love are governed by a providence above. So God sees things differently from the way we do, and what makes it harder is we think we see so well. <laughs> um, so Theseus sees the two men fighting, and he rides over, and this is what happens. Um, Palamon answered quickly, and in guilt, O oh, sir, what need to further word or breath? Both of us have deserted to die the death. Um, to die the death. Two wretched men your captives met in strife, and each of them encumbered with his life. If to judge rightlessly, righteously has been your fashion, show neither of us mercy nor compassion, and kill me first for holy charity. They're both um, um, criminals. They have broken a law. They owe their lives. Now remember, this is St. Thomas Mercy doesn't come out of no... The, the tendency of the modern world is to sentimentalize mercy. Mercy doesn't mean overlooking things. Mercy doesn't come out of nowhere. Mercy comes out of a wrong that's being answered with a justice, a law. The question is whether that law will be applied, be applied legalistically or in mercy, not whether it's going to be removed. In strict strictness, a law can't. It can only be fulfilled in a better way. That's what mercy is. So Theseus, as a man of justice, says, the women respond, um, so don't, don't kill them. His response is, as a man of justice, I have to do this. So he organizes this joust, and you know that the entire third book is a description of the creating of this theater. And it's, I mean, it's enormous. It's almost like a shrine in the ancient world, and the question, I think, probably most of us ask is, why, why does he go to this expense, this trouble, because it takes a year to do it. It's just enormous. You know that on, on the, what is it, the west wall, you've got a, a gate to Venus. On the wall opposite and east is the gate of Mars. And on the northern gate is Diana. So it's the god of love, the god of war, the god of chastity. So these three minor deities are doing battle. Um, and it says something about the people. Palamon is devoted to love, our seat to war. Remember, he's the one, Palamon's the first one to see it. It's one of my reasons for, for thinking, well, I didn't ask who was better, but 
in, in terms of the love, I, I, my sense of this is that Palamon's a little bit better because his love is initial. And if the, the point I want to make here is that Arcite loves by having to overcome something. Because we, we know that there are instances when one man loves another, one man and another man sees the woman falls in love, but his courtesy is great enough that he denies himself to, he tries to stay out of the way. R.C. doesn't do that. His first response is proudful, aggressive. I love her, you're a traitor. And we see that in Mars, that that image of Mars is related to him. Diana wants to, I mean, Emily wants to preserve her virginity or her selfhood, so. Why this great theater? I think because, and I'm not, I don't mean this, I mean, I really take this seriously. Chaucer treats it somewhat comically, but what's at issue in this theater is the tension between um, love and justice, mercy and justice. So I don't think it's an accident that this is amplified. This is the central problem of Christianity, and we know it. We've been seeing it everywhere. The pagan world, the Jewish world, justice, law. Christian world, mercy. But from all the people we've read, mercy does not exist in a vacuum. It relates to how one deals with a law. What does one, one does do away with it, ignore it, enabling, you know, God doesn't do that. Um, what's at issue in this fight is the fundamental tension at the heart of all of us. Who, who believe Christ, believe Christ is God and what he did. Go to the very end, I'm to part four. What, what page do you have, Tom? Part four? I don't, there, there's a paragraph that begins, the heralds then withdrew their work, it's a couple pages in. Before the prayers or after? The heralds then withdrew. No, I'm asking. Oh, it's, uh, it's, it's 70, two pages. 72, the bottom. It's just a couple pages in from the beginning. Here it is again. Um, the, the, each of the knights with their hundred men retinue and the kings that are supporting them, because they both have noble kings supporting them, um, come out. The heralds then withdrew, their work was done when blared the trumpet and the clarion. There was no more to say but east and west to go the spears in readiness at the rest. You know what happens, they fight. And at one point, Palamon is overcome by a great number of men and has to be taken to the side because before they went into the joust, Theseus made it clear, nobody was to die. So there's nobody in this book that wants justice more than he does and there's nobody trying to protect human life more than he does. There's a matter of honor. This is really crucial. He knows that if he let these men, what if he let these men go? What are they going to do? Fight to the death. They're going to kill each other. I hope everybody sees that. Remove these men from under the law. They're going to kill each other because their blood passions are just love takes over. Theseus is a man of justice. He's saying no more. There's an issue of justice here. We'll have this joust. Bring it together. Whoever wins, that man has the right to Emily. The other man steps away. So that will serve justice because he knows whoever loses is going to have to give it all up. And whoever wins at least has the satisfaction of having gone through an ordeal, a, a law. So here, um, this comic 
lines again with um, the way it starts. And then this is what happens. Palamon gets overtaken. He's taken to the side. And um, the passage beginning, for such as these, Duke, Duke Theseus did his best. Do you have it? Battle done. It's just a couple of pages beyond where I was. For such as these, Duke Theseus did his best. He can. Do you have it all? Bottom of seventy-five. Okay. For such as these, Duke Theseus did his best. He comforted and honored every guest and ordered reverie to last the night. Because what's happened, you know, is that Palmon loses, taken to the side. Um, Arceta, in his glory, is prancing around on his horse. Suddenly, the horse shies. Um, and he's thrown to the ground and is mortally, fatally wounded. So this is, now, he's, he's taken off to Theseus's place in Athens, and this is what happens. For such as these do Theseus did his best. He comforted and honored every guest and ordered reverie to last the night for all the foreign princes, as was right. None were discouraged or in discontent. It was a jousting, just a tournament, why should they be discouraged? After all, it's only an accident to have a fall. Tragic comic. Absolutely, no, absolutely, no, absolutely comic. Two men have just gone to battle with each other for everything in their life. There's nothing in the world except this love they have for each other. In the ancient world, this would have been a tragedy. There's no way any poet in the ancient world this is the subject of tragedy, right? The passions, one man being heroic and these two men going in. And, and Chaucer, none were discouraged or in discomfort. It was a jousting, just a tournament. Why should they be discouraged? After all, it's only an accident to have a fall. There's no shame in being born by force and yielded to the stake of 21. I hope, it, is everybody... If you look at the... I mean, oh, let me put it this way. If any one of it, Fred is in his cell hitting his head against the wall. I'm our seat in the woods hitting my head against a tree. We're bleeding to death. Is anybody in the pagan world who doesn't have a Christian view, the passions that work then, is there anybody who's going to treat this except as a tragedy? The tragic emotions would be everything. You'd be, you know, the, the pity the, that you'd feel. Chaucer's running right through all of that. Going down. The battle done with I may now go, this is so good, I may now go to speak of poor Arcide in Palama. Up swells Arcida's breast, the grievous sore about his heart increases more and more. The clotting blood for all the doctor's skill corrupts and festers his body still. <laughs> if you're a woman who loves this man and you're standing over his body, are those thoughts going to be going through your mind? Corrupts and festers his body. Clotting the blood for all the doctor's skill. That neither cupping, bleeding at a vein or herbal drink can make him well again. The expulsive forces known as animal had lost their power. To there were different powers associated with different organs, the brain, the liver. You know, they're, right now they're all in conflict with each other. His lungs began to choke, the vessel swelled, clotted was every muscle in his chest by poison and corruption in his breast. Or could he profit in his will to live by upward vomit or by laxative? <laughs> if, if, if there was an ever example that you can't have a tragedy with, <laughs> with this is it. <laughs> is there anybody who can read this aloud and keep your face? I mean, it just keeps a straight face. It just, 
all, all, there it is again, drumming, all, all, it has to be repeated, all, all were shattered and beyond repair. Nature no longer had dominion there. And certainly, where nature will not work, physic, farewell, go bear the man to Kirk. That's the son of it. Our seat must die. <laughs> so much for all this nobility. Here's, here's the giveaway, if you missed it before then. Nothing of all the sorrows in my breast can now declare itself or be expressed to you, O lady that I love the most. But I bequeath the service of my ghost to you above all creatures in the world. Now that my life is done and banner furled, alas the woe, alas the pain so strong. You, alas, alas. There's the drama queen. I mean, alas, alas, alas. Um, can you imagine any man dying and doing that? Alas, the pain so strong that I have suffered for you so long. Oh, look how, look how I love you, Emily. Sorry. Look how much I love you. Um, now that my love is done and bannered furled, alas, the woe. Alas, my Emily. Alas, the party gone. <laughs> alas, my heart gone. Oh, my heart's own queen. Alas, my wife. Oh, lady of my heart, what ends my life? Go down, farewell, my sweetest foe, my Emily. This is because that's the way. The knight looked at his beloved, whatever like she I'm, asked. I feel like I'm watching a bad Shakespearean play. <laughs> Shakespeare could not have done what he did. We're going to see. Anyway, wait, so, so he's, he's offering up his love. So remember, Palin lost. He had to give her up. He's already had to deny himself. Now our seat is dying. He gives her up, even if he does it in a somewhat dramatic way. Um, now go on over. So he dies, and they make this funeral pyre, and you know that it's this big deal. And, and, and the comparison is with Hector, because you, you're, how does the Iliad end? Tragically, Hector with this pyre, and everybody crying. So here's all the women. Emily, who didn't want to marry, is in hysterical tears. They're all weeping profusely, looking at this man. In fact, Emily has to torch it. She's the one who has to go up. Here's an example that gives it away if you didn't see it before. Remember in the class, we've always talked about the apophatic, apophatic knowledge. You all know that? It's the via negativa, the, the way of negation, the, the way of the mystic. You know God by denying things, take away things, remotion, taking them away. The only, we can't know God except through his effects, like footprints in the sand. We can't know him in his essence. We can only know of his existence by effects. So the way to get to know God is by taking things away. That's called apophatic knowledge. It's the, it's the knowledge of the mystic, okay? Apophatic. Apophatic. Apophatic knowledge. It's, it's one of the great traditions in Christianity. But apophatic is also a rhetorical device. That's where its, it's, it's, its origins are rhetorical. Apophatic means taking away. So rhetorically, what's meant by apophatic is I'm not going to say something. But it's always used rhetorically. It says something like this. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to tell you what a son of a bitch you are. Instead, I'm going to you. Or I'm not going to tell you what a, what a louse you are. I'm cleaning up my language here. Um, I'm not going to do, you know, and we do it anyway. I'm, I'm not going to criticize you for what you just did, but the very fact that you say that means you're already. So apophatic means 
taking away, not saying something, okay? Now, the, the, the climax is handled. Arcita is just, he's just died. So Chaucer now has to deal with what's like a eulogy, in effect. He's, you know, he's responding to the death. This is what he does on page, um, the, the, the paragraph, high was the labor, but how they made the funeral fires flame. So, remember, Chaucer is recalling the knight telling the story. So this is the knight telling the story, but Chaucer, like Dante, telling the story about. So we're getting the knight's tale through this Chaucer, the, the man who's putting it all down. But how they made the funeral flames, fires flame. Oh, what the, now, a guy's just died? And here's what the storyteller's focusing on. High was the labor, rich was the attire and service. Okay. But how they made the funeral fires flame, or what the trees by number or by name, oak, fir, tree, birch, aspen, poplar, too. Um, I can't, because I'm... Illich. Illich, adder, willow, I've got, sorry, lines. Elm and yew, box, chestnuts. But who in a eulogy would describe the trees that are made up and go down the list. When this guy, this hero, has just died, he goes on, beech, chestnuts, plain, ash, laurel, thorn and lime, beech, hazel, whipple tree, I lack the time. <laughs> I lack the time. <laughs> I lack the time to tell you, or who felled them, nor how can tell how their poor gods run up and down the dell, all disinherited habitation. The gods are being denied, the trees are taken down. This is... Um, <laughs> Just so good. The nymph and dryad of the forest lawn, the hemadriad and the subtle fawn, these I pass over, I'm not going to talk about them. Birds and beasts as well that fled in terror when the forest fell, nor shall I say how in sudden light of the unwanted stuff they took fright, nor how the fire first was couched in straw, then in dry sticks th thrice severed with a saw. Now look at the next, I mean just go down, look at the beginning of almost every other line nor how our seat lay, nor of the wealth, nor yet how Emily, nor how she fainted, nor what she said, nor, are you all following? I'm not going to, I'm not going to talk about all of this, or sorry, I'm not going to talk about any of this, again and again and again and again. He goes on like this, um, nor how the wake was held in the daylight of funeral games that lasted all the night, what naked wrestler glistening with oil, remember there's a guy burning up on a pyre right now, um, I will not say, nor how one by one they all went home after the games were done. But shortly to the point, for I intend to bring my long narration to an end. And um, he ends it. I, would, I hope everybody hears the comedy here. That, and my question, why, but hold on, let me, well, let me ask him. Why does he do this? Why does he do this? A guy just died. See how well you've read Boethius here. Debbie, why does he do this? Sorry, I had some little sleep last night. <laughs> there are three of you. It's a, a lot of people that, that you come Friday morning to such a that, that we tend to be over dramatic about the death itself. And I think it's like if, if you go if you go back to what Theseus ultimately 
well, really his father ultimately does in terms of what's what's really important here. And I don't know if you want me to go ahead use that because you I should have gone. Just later. what is what is his father? But I mean, telling? basically, what he tells him is, "You've mourned long enough." That basically, providence has has done what providence does, and you're basically acting against providence by continuing to mourn when you know he has done what's what's best to begin with and so it kind of goes back to that I mean that we're he's, he's almost making a mockery of that that dramatic process of death by going through all of these what we would normally consider to be relatively unimportant details mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. remember the father I mean, you've got the form of the pyre right because he's basically told you what all is constructed of right the, I, I'm glad um, Fred brought it up again. Remember what the father tells Theseus too. He said, "All of us are going to die. It's an inescapable fact. We might as well go through our whole life grieving all the time because we're dying, whether we, you know." So let me put it this way: if if you took how to put this, where is Lady Philosophy in this? Who relates more to Boethius at the beginning of the Constellation? Who identifies more with Boethius when the Constellation opens? Remember, he's grieving and feeling sorry for himself. Who can be identified with Lady Philosophy in all of this? Is that question clear? Father? Hmm? The Father? With who, Doc? With Lady Philosophy? Yeah. Wouldn't you identify Theseus with Lady Philosophy and everybody else with? Boethius at the beginning, the emotions are out of control. The, the, I guess the question I want to ask is, what stance is Faulkner trying to help us have in dealing with death or our emotions? Huh? You mean Chaucer. Chaucer. It's part of the natural order of things. But what's the stance he's asking us to take by the way he does this? No fortune is bad fortune. No fortune is good. I'm thinking of detachment. That, that we know these things are going to happen, and we have to step back and not let our passions overwhelm us because we'll miss something. Just miss that. If you look at the difference between Lady Philosophy and Boethius in that drama, she's helping him to step back. Remember to know, to learn how to see, to understand that there's a providence at work to. Because remember, the whole problem was how we see things. And it seems to me that one of the things Chaucer's doing as a Catholic Christian is the same thing as, as Lady Philosophy. He's, he's trying to present what in the ancient world would have been a tragedy, absolutely tragedy, and render it faithfully, but in a way that helps us hope and laugh. I, I, I think I, I don't think I'm being insensitive here. When Suzanne and I have, have walked away from funerals in the last 10 years, we're at that point where all of our friends are dying. I mean, we're just, we've reached that point. When, when our mothers and fathers and aunts and uncles were alive, it was a different stance. But we reached that point now where I remember saying years ago, we're next. I mean, you realize that you just, you're next. There's no, and when you see that, it's sort of comic because there's nothing you can do about it. And I can remember going to funerals and coming. I'm not. I'm not. The Catholic funeral. I. We came away from dear friends of ours, 
And I can remember saying, you know, we've said it again and again, I'm so glad I'm Catholic. I don't know how people in the world deal with death. If you don't have a faith, what do you do? You know, you, it, with a faith, you can say goodbye to people and, and, and mourn and be glad. Um, the world doesn't have that. I think what Chaucer's doing is trying to cultivate a sense of detachment, the same way Lady Philosophy, without denying the emotions or doing away with them, making a place for grief, but keeping alive a hope and a joy, a gladness. Here's the end of the story. After the funeral is taken place and the wake afterwards, I think a year passes, Polymon returned to Thebes. And Theseus knows that Thebes will be an enemy. I mean, they've been defeated. If, you know that if the, if the regime doesn't change, the war's going to go on. He knows that. Any, anybody who thinks about politics should know that. I mean, look at the policies that left, um, I'm going to leave you, nations in power when something else should have happened, um, the harm that follows it. He calls Palamon and um, with the idea of bringing Emily and Palamon together because Emily was supposed to have been wedded to Arsip, but when he died, it left her free. Here's how the story ends. Remember now, there are these minor gods, Jupiter, Mars, Diana, love, war, chastity, and Saturn. And remember, the minor gods didn't even see things right because when our seat was praying to um, Mars, the, the word came back victorious, like you would be victorious. So our seat thinks he's going to win. He does. But he doesn't see the full meaning of, think about Macbeth. Very often we take a prophecy and think about Christ. We take a prophecy and give it a meaning that's literally true of it when it carries other dimensions of meaning in it. So even the minor gods don't see this. There's something above them because during this time, remember, um, Saturn comes to Emily and, and, and I think it's Emily, says, don't worry that things will work out. Theseus calls Palamon and brings Palamon and Emily together and, and offers them in, in marriage to each other. Here's how he begins his speech. The first great cause and mover of all above, when first he made that fairest chain of love, great was the consequence and high the intent. He well knew why he did and what he meant. He knew what he was about. Um, establish this wretched world, appointing ways, seasons, durations, certain lengths of days to all that is engendered here below, past which predestined hour none must go. All men are going to die. This is right out of Boethius. Boethius talked about the way God made all things. It's a major point in Lady Philosophy's argument. To change and will corrupt, and therefore he and wise foreknowledge establish the decree that species of all things and the progressive of seed and growth continue by succession and not eternally. This is no lie. Any man can see who has an eye. This is um, Lady Philosophy's argument of perpetuity. They just keep going. Um, that's a fact of nature. But to see that isn't to see the way providence does. Um, go down. Who orders this but Jupiter the king, the prince and cause of all and everything, converting all things back into the source from which they were derived to which they must course. 
um, to which they course. And against this no creature here alive, whatever his degree may hope to strive. Then hold it wise, for so it seems to me to make a virtue of necessity, take in good part what we may not eschew, especially whatever things are due to all of us. His is a foolish soul that's rebel against him who guides the whole, and it's in honor to a man whose hour strikes in his day of excellence and flower, when he's certain of his own good name and never known in any act that is to be virtuous. But the principle here is to make a virtue of necessity, to take in good part what we can't change. So we're asked to become more virtuous, to change what we can. We're called to be virtuous, to all of us to work in that direction with each other. But whatever happens, whatever matter of fortune occurs, whatever chance, to see that as an opportunity to become more virtuous, to make a virtue of necessity. Does everybody see how that relates to Boethius and Lady Philosophy? No matter what happens, every piece of fortune is good if we see things as we ought. It's at that point that she asks Emily and Palamon to wed. Um, the advantage to this marriage right now is Palamon has learned to give himself up. He had to give her up. Emily had to give herself up. So both of them have gotten past that self-love that's at bottom of amour courtois, that are passions that drive us and that keep us from loving the way Christ did. So even though he's taking an ancient theme, this is Theseus, the founding, he's taking an ancient theme and dealing with it in the context of courtly love, Christian love, but he's exploring it and he's managed it in such a way that it affirms justice and Christian love as we know it. We're supposed to become better. We should be doing that with each other, trying to become virtuous. <coughs> that's a, a struggle and a war. I'm taking it sometime. But that's our end, to be good, to make a virtue of necessity. So whatever goes on, we should try to bring some good out of it. So very Christian, very Catholic. This is the height of the Middle Ages. Um, Fox, or Chaucer going back. When we read Shakespeare next week, Midsummer Night's Dream, I want you all to read this. You've read, I mean, this is wonderful. The teachers in college wouldn't do this. When we did Chaucer, we were in a medieval program and never connected it to Shakespeare. And teachers who did Shakespeare never, I, there's no way not to. When you read Midsummer Night's Dream now, you're going to be reading the same story. So here's my question. Same story. How does, what does Shakespeare do with it that makes it differ from Chaucer and are there some ways in which Shakespeare speaks toward, for a modern audience, for modernity going forward? The Chaucer speaking for a medieval Catholicism. I believe Shakespeare's Catholic, but I, but I think he's looking, he's on the verge of a modern world. The Copernican Revolution has taken place. The Reformation has taken place. The, Na the Roman Empire is breaking down into modern states. He knows that. What is Shakespeare doing with the Theseus? He's going back to a founding. Carrying it forward, what does he do with it that's different from Chaucer, and what does it tell us about the modern world? <laughs> any questions? Sorry, any questions? You all? Any you comments? I think you covered it all.
I think it's just amazing how the, the, the way you've done it, how all the different works just seem to fuse into the next one. We all speak you, to each other. You, you, you put that together very well, I think. Because, I mean, as soon as you start reading, it's like this 